0: Hey, welcome to The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias, and I've got a really good book for you today that I'd like to look at. I'm pulling off my bookshelf. It's by J. Warner Wallace. He was the author of Cold Case Christianity, and I've already covered a chapter in that book. That was his first book. This is God's Crime Scene. It's his second book. He also has put out Forensic Faith He's got uh, a new one out called Person of Interest, which I'm hoping to get soon and uh, give you a little comment or two on that. God's Crime Scene is a book that focuses on the universe and looking for evidence that there is a creator out there. Let me just read a couple of comments that people have made. Eric Metaxas, who's a best-selling author himself and a radio host, He said, what if a brilliant prosecutor tried to prove the existence of God using real evidence and crystal clear arguments? Well, that's precisely what Jay Warner does in this magnificent book, and you get to be the jury. Don't blink. Thrilling and amazing. Nancy Piercy, who's a terrific author and a good apologist, said, if I'm ever in court, I want Jim Wallace on my side. And uh, so she talks about his clear thinking abilities. Lee Strobel. Author of all of the Case 4 books, including A Case for Christ, he says, It's a compelling and creative book. Dr. Frank Turek, president of Cross-Examined, another good author, a terrific speaker. He said, It's hard to find a more compelling and concise treatment of these issues anywhere. Hank Hanegraaff, best-selling author, president of the Christian Research Institute, says, Sherlock Holmes has nothing on J. Warner Wallace. In God's crime scene, he uses the tools of a world-class homicide detective to discern whether or not clues point in the direction of a divine intruder. Now, one more. Here's Paul Copan. We had Paul come and speak to our uh, apologetics class one time. He said he builds a fascinating, well-rounded, even-handed case for the Christian faith. For those interested in the available evidence for God, his book points the way. So that gives you an idea that uh, a lot of people give some really glowing reviews about this book. So here are some of the things he covers. Um, The start of the universe. The origin of life. Design in the universe. Our experience of consciousness. Do we have free will? What about morality? Is it more than just um, an opinion? You know, you have your opinion. Can God and evil coexist? And so he's got all sorts of really powerful things that he wrestles with. So it ends up a pretty good-sized book, a little over 300 pages. I'd like today to just look at one chapter of his. And this is chapter 6 that deals with the consciousness issue, or they call it the problem of consciousness, people who don't believe there's a God. It's only a problem for them because they can't figure out how you get material stuff to end up being conscious. So, I'm sorry, it's chapter 5. So it's called Our Experience of Consciousness. Are we more than matter? And he starts with a uh, quick review of a simple law of logic, which is called the law of identity. So it's pretty simple. The law of identity just says, look, if you have object A and object B, some two things, if they share every attribute, they are the same thing. So for example, if you took uh, me, and you say okay person A that's Gary Zacharias person B the English teacher out of Palomar College okay are they the same person now right, Well, you find out this person is married both columns Gary Zacharias the English teacher out of Palomar both columns will say yes married name of the wife Sharon number of kids the same number of grandkids the same birthday the same Age the same, height the same, and you go on down the list. And you say every single thing about Gary and this English teacher at Palmer are identical. I bet that's the same one. That's like an equal sign, and that's that's called an identity relationship. So he uses that as an example of these two things: minds and brains. Are they identical? If they're the same thing, which is what the secularist says: oh, your mind is your brain. It's just your brain. So The mind is identical, according to them, to our physical brains. Well, if that's true, everything true about the mind should be true about the brain and vice versa. Okay, so he's going to go through and he's going to have several evidences to suggest there are actually big differences. So he says the first area that he wants to look at is public versus private. So he says uh, physical states can be publicly known. What does that mean? Well, you can look at a car, for example, and you can see the car. It's public. Everybody can gather around and see that. But a mental state is just privately known. It's privately known. Like a neurophysiologist, he says, they, they can't open your physical brain and locate your thoughts inside there. They can't be accessed by surgeons. So your, your imagination or your mind or your soul, whatever you want to call it, is different than something that's out in the in the world it's the stuff out in the world is public we can all see it and photograph it but we can't do that with the mind number two here's another difference between a mind and a brain he calls it isness versus aboutness well, what does he mean he says well most mental states are about something. So we worry, for example, about our kids. We worry about our keys. Where are they? We worry about our house. Did I lock the door when I went out? So we worry about something. They depend on the existence of something else. But that's not true of a physical entity. A door, for example, it isn't about anything. It just is. But our concerns about a door being locked depend on a real door being there. So... Physical objects can be in relationship with other physical objects, like you could have your brain and your skull, but they're never about another physical object. So does that make sense? Isness versus aboutness. Isness are physical objects. Like I've got a laptop computer here in front of me. It's not about anything. It just exists. But I can think about this computer. I can wonder if I've got enough power. I can wonder if i spent money the right way to get this thing. I can wonder about some of my software that I've got. I mean, do you see the difference there? So it's isness versus aboutness. They're not the same. So we got issue number one. The brain is public. You can access the brain. You can look at it. But your thoughts, the mind part, is private. Nobody can get to that. And now evidence two. Isness is different than aboutness. Isness is a physical object, just is your mental processes are about something. So that's different. Here's number three, evidence number three that Wallace talks about. He calls it incorrect versus indisputable. What does he mean? Well, you could be incorrect about physical entities. What does that mean? I I could say, I think the car is in the garage. And then I go out there and it's not in the garage. Oops. Well, I'm incorrect about that. Or I say, I think the car is about 2,800 pounds. And I find out later it's over 3,000 pounds. Oops, I'm incorrect about this physical entity. But what I believe is indisputable. If I say I was thinking about my car, I had thoughts about my car, that's indisputable. I I might get my physical entity incorrect. Here's an example. Here's another example. Maybe we should do a different example. I want to make sure. Maybe, for example, he says, I might be mistaken about a burglar in the next room. Maybe there's no burglar at all, but I cannot be mistaken about my belief in the burglar. That's indisputable. So do you see the difference here? Something can be indisputable, and that's a physical object. You can't be incorrect. I'm sorry, you can be incorrect about physical objects. I could be incorrect about a color of something. I could be incorrect about the size of something. I could be incorrect about the price of something. But what I believe is is never a dispute. That's what I believed about. Okay, here's evidence for. He calls it impersonal versus personal. Well, what are we talking about here? Physical entities and states can be described impersonally. Okay, so he says here's an example. He says let's suppose you're a trained police officer. And you've uh, read and you've undergone education in how to discharge a handgun with an armed suspect. You know about the firearm, what it's going to do, the ammunition, all that kind of stuff. You've also been trained maybe in the biology of the human body and the impact that a round would have if you fired it on an attacker. You've You've been trained what you can expect to experience and see and hear the noise and things like that. So you know all of the physical or the impersonal aspects. Well, do, do you know everything there is to know about that? No, you don't have the experience of being in a real shooting. You would still not have knowledge of the shooting. Your subjective, personal experience and your feelings would be real. But all that sound and the thoughts and the pains and the trauma could only be described subjectively. Okay, so what are we saying? Physical entities and states can be described Objectively and impersonally. Let me give you another example. I've heard other places talking about a bat. All right. So you read everything. You're the world's expert on bats. You know everything about their habits and where they live and what they eat, but you will never know what it's like to be a bat, right? So it's impersonal versus personal. Or you may read about what it's like to be in a a super expensive car that can go 200 miles an hour. You can read everything about what it does to the body when the acceleration occurs. So that's all impersonal information. It's just objective. That's you know what it's going to feel like. But you come back from a ride in it. Now you've got a different set of beliefs. You have personal uh, mental states. That's going to distinguish them from physical. So that's impersonal versus personal. Here's another evidence. Maybe I should back up at this time, just make sure we're okay. Public versus private. That was... Difference number one: physical things are public; your mental uh, activities are private. The isness versus aboutness. Number three: the incorrect versus the indisputable. Number four: the impersonal versus the personal. And then Jim goes to the next state, the next uh, evidence. Number five: measurable versus measureless. So, for example, you could take a brain and you can weigh it. You can measure it for length or width. You can calculate the mass. Uh, you can use chemistry and physical terms and things like that. But what happens when you've got mental entities? You, they don't have physical weight. Our mental entities, like our thoughts, our wills, our desires, they can't be measured. What's a pound of your desire? There's no such thing. What color is your desire? It doesn't make any sense. So you can measure, you can take a pencil, you can take a, a weighing device, you can take a microscope, whatever it is, you can measure physical things, but not what's going on in your head. In fact, somebody once said this, uh, how, how, you could picture right now in your head, you could picture uh, the American flag, but if somebody cracks your head open and tries to find the color red in there for the stripes or the blue, or the white stars, there's no, there's no um, physical light that can operate inside your brain. It's totally dark in there. Where's that coming from? So that's pretty interesting. So we're talking about a difference between uh, measurable and measureless. So here we've got the brain and the mind. They are not the same thing. The brain can be publicly accessed. The mind can only be privately accessed. The brain just is, but your mind, your mental states are about... The brain is disputable. You might get some things wrong about it, but your thoughts are always indisputable. You know what you're thinking about, whether you get the the measurement right. The brain is impersonal or objective, but the mind is personal and subjective when it goes through an experience. The brain is measurable. The mind is not. It's measureless. So that looks like a lot of things are different. So here comes a huge question. Can materialism, can people who don't believe in a God, can they explain the existence of mind? See, that's part of the problem. You, you see often books out talking about the problem of consciousness. Well, it's a problem because it's very difficult to try to figure out how does physical stuff end up having thoughts and self-awareness. Some people say, well, maybe mental states are just brain states, right? That they're, they're one and the same. Mental states like anger and pain are the same as, uh, as uh, brain states. But he says, you know, if you think about it, if our thoughts are nothing more than physical material states, none of us would have the freedom to think rationally. Oh, wow. Physical brains are subject to the laws of physics. Mental states are subject to the laws of logic. That's a contradictory position. And he covers that in another chapter as well. He says, well, another way that uh, people try to account for mind as a being a physical thing, he says, it's just behavior. They call it behaviorism. But he says, you know, behaviorism ignores the evidence of our own personal experience of consciousness. We recognize our thoughts cause our behavior rather than the behavior itself. So he spends a lot of time on this Uh people who are materialists trying to figure out where the mind fits into all of this. He says it it comes down to what they call substance dualism that says matter and and mind are two distinct categories of being. And he says, we don't know precisely how the non-material mind can cause a response in the material brain, but he says that doesn't negate the evidence of our common conscious experience. So he says the most reasonable inference after all of this evidence when you look at that private versus public and the isness versus aboutness, is he says it looks like there really is a separate thing called the mind separate from the brain. And he says that's dualism that begins to account for all those differences between the mind and brain. So he says the mind then points the existence of the mind points as his whole book talks about points to the existence of a god. Uh, one of the things he talks about I think is really interesting he says how could I arrest someone remember he's a cold case detective how could I arrest someone for committing a crime when the person's physical properties were different than they are today our bodies change over time he says you know if all we are is physical we're not the same people we were years ago we were years ago so why would you arrest somebody they could say no I'm I'm a different person well I hope that gives you an idea of what Wallace is talking about now that's one of the harder chapters so don't, don't get a discouraged if you thought that was uh, hard to follow. I've had to read it a bunch of times to begin to figure it out myself. But many of these other chapters are far easier to figure out. For example, design in the universe, the beginning of the universe, life coming from non-life, things like that. So this is an amazing book. One more time, it's called God's Crime Scene. The author is Jay Warner Wallace. He goes by Jim. We've had him at our apologetics class. We've had him come and speak to our church. He's a warm, wonderful human being. And I know you'd get something out of it. Powerful book. Okay, well, thanks a lot. We'll try another book uh, next time.